1: Hey, it's Arlene and filling in for Alex Pearson on On Point. Today on the podcast, Burlington has opened a field hospital. It was built to handle the increasing demand for COVID-19. We're going to talk to the president of the hospital. Then, are people in prisons being forgotten about when it comes to reporters? We'll speak to investigative journalist Justin Ling. And then we're going to speak with tech expert Adam Oldfield about the ways technology may save us. They're adapting to dealing with this pandemic. And one item is a mask for your car. Let's start.
2: You're listening to On Point on Global News Radio.
1: For Alex Pearson, good evening. I'm Arlene Bonin, and what a night. We're inching and creeping along in this new year, and stuff is going on tonight. We have uh, today the prime minister came back with the proclamations and pledges and promises, and tonight we're going to analyze exactly why they're all happening. And why don't we we begin uh, tonight here as we kind of get the lay of the land of Justin Trudeau, who has made a an announcement today that vacationing Canadians, they're not going to get the sick benefit. Clearly, what happened is the politicians started to go over like bowling pins from Ontario to Alberta to Saskatchewan. The prime minister would like an image of the person who is not part of that. Here's the announcement today.
2: Let me also be very clear about the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit. It is not intended for travellers who are quarantining when they return from holiday. This programme was created to give people sick leave if they needed it and otherwise wouldn't have one from their employer. It's not there to pay for someone's post-vacation quarantine. We'll have more details soon, but anyone who travelled for non-essential reasons will not be able to access the sickness benefit.
1: So here we go. I mean, there was the empathetic, there was the dramatic version, and we saw this all. We were watching this for from our politicians, and clearly, I'm you know, I'm just surmising that there has been a lot of polling, and people ticked off about those vacationing politicians, and here we have Justin Trudeau starting the "Oh, we're not that kind of a government" phase, where they're pulling back. You know, one has to say. Should this benefit, should there be any confusion? I mean, should people who went on vacation, should they have ever been allowed this benefit? So no, we're getting into the nitty gritty. And tonight we're going to bring you the latest on the virus. And it's, what do we say? I mean, we say that every day and we're at a moment where it's growing. We're seeing the political reaction get do or die because it is, these images are being forged part of it, too, what's happening in the long-term care homes. And I'm going to make a prediction. I think some of the outrage that we saw, or let me, let me put it this way, this prediction, I hope, some of the outrage that we have just seen with the irony and the hypocrisy of these vacationing politicians making videos and telling us one thing and then not doing it, I hope we start to see it as we look at the vulnerable here and the elderly. It is incredible, you know. If you are looking, we're hearing more and more about alien life, credible stories we are, we are. And if there is alien life staring down at it right now, are they they must be wondering, saying they say this to the people all the time, but they don't do it. A couple of days ago, here I was talking about ageism and where we go from here. And tonight we'll pick up on that as we feel that pressure for the long-term care homes. Here is Dr. Sinha, Samir Sinha, who is Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health System. I just want to run uh, some of Dr. Sinha's comments. And I have to say that uh, this doctor has been out in front right from the starting gate here, believing that this all this pandemic already was showing ageism, And there was a lot of talk and nothing was getting done. Here is the doctor's comments this morning on Kelly Cutrera's show.
2: When people say that we're doing better than we were before, we're not really because we have unprecedented community transmission. And the fact that we didn't actually use our summer of opportunity like other provinces did to fix our staffing issues, to make sure that our staff on the front line were supported with the right knowledge they needed around infection prevention and control supports, we're seeing at homes are entering an outbreak, the death counts are rising. And even when the government is now actually sending inspectors in, they're coming out with reports saying the staff don't know how to use PPE. It just makes you wonder, like, what's actually been happening.
1: It's incredible. You know, last night on our panel, we had some really good comments on people who work in politics. I think Jamie Ellerton said, You can sit down and you can say to people, You know what? I'm going to show you how to call people and do a call list. And then you follow up and then you go back and then you circle back. If they can do that when it comes to politics, and we are talking about politicians here. Why the heck can they not do it for long-term care? And the prediction that I'm going to finish is this is going to matter. And I'm hopeful that people are going to make this matter. We only get what we ask for. Do you think all this reaction would have happened across Canada if there wasn't damn outrage to what happened with those vacationing politicians? It got things going. And it's one thing to say, oh, let's protect the vulnerable, open everything up and protect them. And why isn't it happening? And someone should be held accountable. Also tonight, we're going to weigh in on the United States. I mean, you know, if... A lot of us have got like one eye blinking watching what's happening there after the election. And we need to focus tonight. Reggie Cicchini is going to join us from Washington, who is watching what's happening in the Georgia vote. And this is a big, is a big deal, what's happening today, because it could, it will influence the outcome of United States politics. If the Democrats can win these two Senate seats, they've got it all. And they can come and get them, and they can go for the Republicans, and they will have the power, and Joe Biden can be a president and make some moves. However, if the Republicans can pull this off and take these two final seats here that will determine the balance of power, then we are in for one heck of a ride. You've got Mitch McConnell with so much power. And will Donald Trump try to influence that panel? Also, tonight, today, late today in Pennsylvania... They kicked out a a senator, a duly elected Democratic senator was not allowed to be seated. So we've got a lot of kicking out, threatening to kick out, threatening to overturn that is happening in the United States. And yet another uh, court case was tossed out as the president had tried to get um, another uh, reversal on the election outcome. It is uh, incredible. We'll see what Reggie Cicchini has to say. And then also remember tomorrow, the world will be watching the United States as well as we wait to see what will happen as the electoral votes are confirmed and counted in Washington. And the president is is really pressuring uh, Vice President Pence uh, not to do that. And he doesn't have that power, <laughs> so uh, we'll talk we'll talk with Oji Chikini about that. It is a moment, shall we say, even with everything we have watched in the United States, it is a moment. and And also, as we look for landmarks here, in Burlington, there's a field hospital, and it was built in case they needed extra room, and they say they're opening it now. We want to find out why. What are they seeing? And you know, there's still so much talk about how to analyze these numbers. And the same things are out there as they are now when the numbers are going up. When do you get nervous about ICU? When can you say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna go to the hospital and it's not gonna work for me? And what if that doesn't happen? Did all this need to happen? And what is the, what is the price? And kids back at school, Parents just scrambling. Every parent I know, especially with the elementary school kids, is flipping out this week. They really have been thrown a big wrench, and they're trying to do their own work, and they're trying to teach their kids, and there's a feeling that children may not go back to school even after the 11th. Is that something? We're hearing about these new restrictions that may happen in the city of Toronto. So, yikes. We got, a, we got a lot going on. It was a big story because it's really, sometimes there's a picture and a sign of this virus and how it's moving. And this is one, a field hospital that was built in Burlington for COVID-19. Now it's opening. We're going to find out why. Joining us is Eric Vanderwall, who is president and CEO of Joseph Brandt Hospital. Eric, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for the opportunity, Arlene.
1: All right. Now, this was planned, and now it's opened. What does that mean?
0: Well, in essence, it means that uh, not only Joseph Brandt Hospital, but hospitals in our surrounding area are under intense uh, and significant pressure for acute care capacity. And so we do have a regional plan that we've developed amongst uh, the Haldeman, Hamilton, Niagara, Brandt hospitals that would allow us to deploy the PRU to keep scheduled care up and running. So as we know, in the first wave, we unfortunately had to bring down scheduled care, surgeries, diagnostic procedures, and we ended up with quite a backlog provincially. So the PRU is available to decant patients who are relatively stable, who are COVID patients, and uh, they're not ready to go home, but they still need some support, perhaps oxygen medication and some ongoing monitoring. So by being able to decant those patients from our regional hospitals, that gives us a better chance of keeping scheduled surgeries up and going and not having to reduce that uh, those surgeries or access to regional programs.
1: You know, I remember the first pictures of the field hospitals happening in the parks in New York City. It was really disturbing. But as you say, as we find out more about the planning, it works like a safety valve, and all these hospitals have a, have a place to put things so they continue to do business. Is this a, a sign of that planning working out right now when you need it?
0: Yes, absolutely. And as you know, we built the field hospital uh, this past April. And uh, at that time, uh, when we made the decision in March, we were seeing projections that were equivalent to to your point, what we were seeing in New York and seeing in Italy. And so uh, the, hospital, or the, the province had asked hospitals to increase capacity. And so this was part of our plan to increase capacity. What's unique about the PRU, obviously, is that it, it, it allows us to keep moving patients through the system, and not occupying uh, inpatient acute beds that can be used for other purposes.
1: Okay, how long will it be there? Is there a moment, I mean, if we go up and down with this virus and you're not moving people through, does it close down and does that clog things back again?
0: A great question. Well, the goal is to keep flowing patients through. And so again, these are patients who are uh, relatively stabilized in their COVID care, and uh, but they still need some treatment, but they don't require intense acute care or ICU level care so by creating this this vehicle of the PRU and and this uh, model of care, we're allowed to have a, an interim step for patients to complete the recovery um, in the, in, in, in the uh, PRU before going home. So the idea is we want to keep flowing patients through there to allow inpatient beds and other capacity to be available for scheduled programs and scheduled care.
1: All right. How do you feel? It's been one heck of a ride for all of us. And as the president and CEO of a a major hospital, how are you feeling right now as you're watching what's happening all around us with this virus and pandemic hour by hour?
0: Well, with uh, hospitalizations increasing and a fairly significant increase again today and ICU bed numbers, uh, occupancy increasing as well, I have to say I'm very concerned. Uh, I'm very concerned for healthcare workers and our ability as hospitals to have beds available when people need them most. And so if I was to make any plea to the public, it would be to really follow the public health measures, take this virus seriously. We're in it together and we can get through it together. But on the current trajectory, it's going to have a significant uh, impact on the hospital system's ability to be there when people need us the
1: most. What worries you, you know, as you say, you know, if you, if you had a shot of saying anything, the choice that you just made right now was to tell people to take it seriously. Is there still a concern that people think it perhaps is no worse than the flu?
0: Uh, I I think there's a number of sentiments out there. I think people Mm -hmm. have COVID fatigue. I think uh, some people are not concerned about the severity of how the virus may affect them. Uh, I also think people are holding a lot of promise for the vaccine, which I think we all are obviously in terms of being a major tool in the toolbox to battling this uh, this virus. But in the meantime, before we get everybody vaccinated, we have to continue to follow the measures to, to bend the curve and to um, give hospitals and the health system a fighting chance to be there and so that we don't have to cancel you know, critical surgeries and other care like we did in the first wave.
1: How do you think, I mean, look at us, and, you know, it it would have been amazing to discuss that this field hospital was going to be built a couple of years ago, even a year and a half ago, and now here it is. What's going to be left over from this? Because clearly things just can't go back to the way they were before, otherwise we haven't learned anything.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think, uh, well, I know many hospitals, in fact, I think all hospitals, as we were restoring care after the first wave, so bringing scheduled surgical care up, et cetera, we were redesigning our processes you know, with COVID in mind. And so everything that we've done over the past six to seven months has really challenged us to rethink how we provide care, how we deliver care, how we work with patients. And a great example of that is how virtual um, technology and care has really skyrocketed uh, from where it was before the pandemic. And that's now a major tool that physicians and caregivers are using in, in interacting with patients that we weren't really optimizing as well as we could have prior to the pandemic. So I think that's one example. There's many others in terms of how we are re-engineering how we work to, uh, to work differently in a post-COVID-type environment.
1: All right. Final question. You know, we're watching this field hospital. What does it do to the psychology of your hospital and the other ones who know you have this place to put people who aren't ready to go home, but who need the care. I mean, is it is it helping those who work to know psychologically that there's extra room out there?
0: I think it has helped uh, not only our, our healthcare worker team and our staff at our hospital, but also um, our community and knowing that uh, we have um, thoughtful and uh, a plan of foresight, but also a plan that um, allows this capacity to be used wherever it's needed the most. So we're, we're all in this together, the, the historical boundaries of, you know, what was Burlington and what we serviced for Burlington patients and, say, Newmarket is an example. Um, if the Newmarket Hospital, for example, needs to decant patients and there's nowhere else for them to go, and if we're called upon and we have the capacity, then we'll be there to take care of patients. We're all in it together. The historical boundaries don't exist anymore. So I think just the idea of having any mm-hmm. additional capacity in the system that's already well, well overtaxed, uh, gives hope for people.
1: Eric Van der Wa- Waal, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Take care. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Eric Van der Waal is president and CEO of Joseph Prant Hospital in Burlington, as the whole country really looks at this field hospital built in Burlington. And they planned it, and now they said, let's open it up because we need it. Sign of the times. Interesting there is we talked about the psychology and how it might help those who are working. And, and let's face it, our own psychology matters with what we're doing. And one thing that we're starting to hear, and I, I think it's kind of an important part of the show tonight, and we'll, we'll bring it up in our talker panels too, is, you know, the vaccine was seen as the panacea. We were all like, yippee, it was like V-Day. You know, we're out, all right. Welcome back. And good evening for Alex Pearson. I'm Arlene Bynum. You know, it seems everywhere you turn, this virus is changing really quickly, not just the variants, but it is changing and rising in places that didn't expect it. Barbados, people were heading to Barbados to work and were being lured by offers of the tropics in a safe place. Well, an outbreak in a prison has changed all that. 266 cases in a few days. And now the scene in Barbados is completely different. And now we have a report in the United States that researchers believe more than half a million additional cases of COVID from the prisons. Who's responsible here in Canada? What is the case? And it brings to mind so many questions about how we treat inmates. Joining us is Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist. Justin, welcome.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Justin, I know you've been taking a special interest in this because it does. There's something about this virus, first of all, off the top, doesn't it? I mean, if there was a problem, if there was something that needed to be exposed, it's almost like a um, historical hand that moves in and says, look, the virus is affecting that community and you've been ignoring Mm -hmm. it.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I, it was actually sort of a coincidence that I, I ended up kind of on this file in the first place. I happened to have been assigned a story from McLean's magazine about the state of Canada's prisons early in the new year in 2020. And when the pandemic hit, just suddenly my phone number wound up in the hands of a whole bunch of federal inmates and lawyers, prison advocates. And I was getting these calls frantically from the spring onwards from people who are saying, you know, I'm inside this federal institution and there's no soap. We don't have any friggin' soap. They're not giving us masks. They're not cleaning properly. They're keeping us all together. They're throwing guys in solitary confinement because they have the sniffles, right? So over the last year, it's been this just these stories that keep repeating themselves of the federal government being woefully unprepared, woefully inequipped, and woefully incompetent in dealing with these outbreaks.
1: You know, as we look at the vaccine, the ethics and our priorities is a a better word, really, because we're trying to tie the two together, is, is facing what do you do about the prisons? And then here in Canada, as you've been pointing out, there is a dispute over who's responsible. Vaccines are one thing and the federal government is responsible for another thing. I mean, they're kind of caught in the middle here, aren't they?
3: That's right. It's actually funny because so I've been asking for three weeks now, who's responsible for vaccinating federal inmates? Um, and you know, this is a big concern because the reality is, even if you don't really care about folks who are sitting in prison, um, outbreaks in those institutions put at risk correctional officers, uh, health care and support mm-hmm. workers, and communities nearby that will need to take these people into hospital if they get sick. So vaccination actually is very important when it comes to our federal institutions. At first, the federal government just had no answer for me. They took weeks to get back to me. Mm-hmm. Finally, they respond by saying, "Well, you know what? That's a provincial responsibility. The federal government won't be vaccinating anybody." Well, then I hear from the government of Ontario saying, "That's not our job either." And now, finally, I've got confirmation from the federal government that yes, in fact, they they will be acquiring doses and vaccinating federal inmates. When and how that's going to look like, still up in the air. We should hear this week, but as of right now, uh, you know. That is still the federal government's
1: job. All right. And, Justin, you know, it's always surprising to people. They may say, okay, you know, these people have committed crimes. But when somebody goes to prison, it is the government's responsibility, not just to punish them. Their responsibility is also to protect them. You know, they go to prison, they don't get a death sentence. That's not part of it.
3: That's right. And and listen, there are people in prisons who, you know, I've covered who I have very little sympathy for you know there are yeah. serial killers and mobsters and it. all sorts of bad folks but the reality is there's also people in there who are wrongfully convicted we we know that there are people who are in there who are wrongfully convicted we know there are people in there who just made a mistake you know who committed small-time fraud or um, you know, who were caught dealing drugs and had so much on them that they ended up in federal prison or you know folks who just got dealt a bad hand in life who are not violent you know roughly a third of all federal inmates are nonviolent offenders. You know, many federal inmates have been inside for 20 or 30, 40 years. Some of them are elderly. We have people inside of our federal prisons who have Alzheimer's, who don't even remember what they did to get there. And, and mm. it strikes me that trying to continue punishing them is a fool's errand. The federal government has been told for years that it needs to start decarcerating people who are at risk who are infirm who are elderly and who don't pose a risk to the public the federal government has consistently ignored and refused those calls and has consistently done so in the midst of a deadly pandemic one that is targeting and particularly dangerous for elderly people and those with comorbidities the government has time and time again said we have zero interest in decarcerating them we have zero interest in letting them go we're going to try to mitigate things inside the prison and do our best to make sure that the virus doesn't spread inside those institutions. Well, unfortunately, they haven't done that. They've done a terrible job. In the first round of the pandemic, we saw about 400, 500 cases of COVID-19. We're already well past that in the second wave. We're going to see upwards of 1,000 cases this wave. And if things don't get under control soon, we could see thousands more. More people are going to die. Three people have died thus far, and I, I would be shocked if we don't see more deaths in the coming weeks.
1: It is. It's a test in so many ways. And I I totally uh, hear people who say, you know, uh, we don't want to coddle people who were in prison. This is something else. And again, I go back to that Barbados story. It spread in the public because of those who worked there, and they took a bus. It's hard, though, Justin, isn't it? We're really seeing the holes as this vaccine rollout comes out. We're seeing big gaps, and these are old stories that are coming back, only they've got a virus on the hunt.
3: Yeah, that's right. And and, and again, it's one of those things where you start seeing what governments are good at, right? You start seeing where they're actually capable of learning and improving and where they're not. And in this case, the government has shown itself just woefully incapable of acting. You know, Over the summer, it had months and months of zero cases, both in the population and in prison, to do something. And it did nothing. It hasn't decarcerated more than a dozen people, um, who are at risk of COVID-19. It has done virtually nothing to put people who are nonviolent back into those communities where they can actually protect themselves and live with their families. You know, I've spoken to people who are inside prison terrified of COVID-19, who are pregnant, who are inside prison mm-hmm. for, for just simple theft, who are terrified about their baby's health. I've spoken to folks who have asthma, who are elderly, who, again, committed fraud, committed you know drug offenses. Um, who are inside and terrified not only about catching COVID-19, but about being thrown in solitary confinement if they start th- showing symptoms, which is what our government's solution is. Um, if we were capable of decarcerating enough people to actually make sure people had space in those prisons, we would see fewer cases. The federal government has refused to do that. And you know, I've been asking about this for, uh, God, eight months now, nine months I think we're at now, and the government has not changed course at all it, has, it, is, it is operating under the definition of insanity. It's doing the same thing again and again and again and expecting different results.
1: You know, even in the United States, and I know this report attributing half a million extra cases from the prisons, they did let a lot of people go and put them in homes and they could go at home and be monitored. We know there's some famous ones like Michael Cohen, the former lawyer, of the president of the United States. They are doing that and they still have cases as well.
3: Yeah, but what you're actually seeing, and what's what's so brilliant about this report is that it shows you a really clear correlation between the most crowded prisons and the the hardest hit counties. Um, you know, basically the the so counties in America with the highest number of cases also have prisons that are overpopulated. So you can actually you can see the graph. You can go up, and I think it's the Prison Institute. Um, they have a very clear graph that shows. The communities that are hardest hit have these prisons in in their counties, um, and and you also are seeing this uh, in Canada as well. Some of the provinces actually have done a good job of decarcerating. Ontario, you know, of all of all the provinces, Ontario. Uh, has depopulated its prisons by about a third, allowing for greater social distancing, allowing for fewer staff to have to report to work every day, allowing people to take time off to get tested or or self-isolate if they have to. And you are generally seeing Ontario's prisons faring better. Um, Other provinces that haven't taken those steps are are now struggling under the weight of all of these cases and are going to have to divert public health resources from the general population to dealing with these inmates. Which is just, you know, I, again, an instance of a, a total lack of planning, a total lack of preparation, making everything worse in the end.
1: You know, uh, finally, let me ask you, why do you think this is happening? Look at the attention solitary confinement got, and there was movement. I mean, you start to hear individual stories. If there's individual stories here, will it move the dial, or are people just too scattered right now? They're like, I want to go to the grocery store. I don't feel safe here and there, and this may be the last thing they're worried about.
3: Yeah, I think that's a part of it. You can't expect the general population to, to spend their time worrying about the, um, you know, the concerns of, of federal inmates. They have other things to worry about. I get that. But generally speaking, the government gets away with this because people don't care. Yeah, and we know this. I mean, you mentioned solitary confinement. After the death of Ashley Smith, who you know, committed suicide after being placed in solitary confinement uh, for you know months at a time, mm-hmm. there was supposed to have been action. But the media stopped asking questions, politicians stopped caring, voters just didn't care. So the federal government just absolutely ignored that issue entirely until repeated court uh, orders told them to fix it. When they finally fixed it, they didn't do a damn good job at all. We know that from uh, a number of studies that uh, Correctional Services Canada tried to thwart. We didn't end solitary confinement in this country. If anything, it's gotten worse. So... It's one of those things where because people just don't care, the government's going to keep doing it. And it doesn't matter how many stories I write. It doesn't really matter how many lawsuits get filed, how much money gets wasted. The government doesn't have any impetus to change its actions. Therefore, they're not going to.
1: Yeah. And we're seeing it with long-term care. Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist. Take care. Happy New Year. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Welcome back. I'm Arlene Bynum for Alex Pearson. And uh, we created a lot of problems in our minds here with the uh, virus laying out some new roads forward. What is going to save us? Is it going to be science? Is it going to be rollouts? Well, what about technology? Always there to jump in and solve the problems of our times. And a story that was released today is evidence of that. Honda is releasing a mask for your car to protect against viruses. I'm not kidding. So who do you call? Adam Oldfield, president of FPM3.com and 640 Toronto Tech expert. Adam, welcome. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing extremely well. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm feeling much healthier, by the way. Thanks.
1: Oh, good. Well, you knew technology was going to save us. And first of all, before we get into the big concept of this, what is this mask that Honda has come up with it just sounds completely timely and brilliant
2: well definitely with all of the news that's going on right now and what's happening there's still a lot of announcements pertaining to how the virus is transferred and one of the cases with honda is that they've instituted a filter think of it as a a wrap uh, that goes over top of the car filter our, our cars come with filters and it flows the air inside the inside your vehicle when you're driving and so what Honda did was they created a filter that kind of wraps around the car filter. Um, and in fact, there's, there's filters that are built for furnaces uh, for the home uh, it's called MERV 13. That's the style and the thickness of the filter. And it's capable of actually blocking uh, uh, viruses. Um, and so what they've done is they've taken this uh, filter uh, thickness and applied it to the filter that goes inside the car. So Honda's created this, virus covid suppressant so when you're running your air system um it innovatively helps keep the air fresh and clean up to so many thousand kilometers or however long you're running your vehicle
1: you know is it is it something where you could sit and maybe have a conversation without a mask do we know how it would really apply itself to how we live our life in a car
2: well you know it's, that's a great point and you know the thing is about the filters is that as it's drawing air and filtering it I mean when you're in the vehicle it's really more in tune with the fact that if you're with a stranger if so if uh, say you're it's an uber driver or taxi driver and you have a uh, uh, you know a new guest gets in the vehicle if these Hondas were to be Ubers or taxis, um, what it does is it will filter the air as it's flowing through the vehicle. However, obviously, I'm no scientist, but the airflow between discussions between the, uh, uh, the people in the vehicle is still subject to possibly, uh, you know, maybe transferring the virus. Um, but in that case where uh, the driver is driving, it protects the driver more so if there's a plexiglass or a a separator, it could definitely help filter the air uh, as far as kind of like creating a bit of a safe environment for other people that come into the car. So is it 100% going to, hey, we could all have COVID sit in the same car and uh, not share Mm -hmm. our viruses? No, it's not going to do that. But It definitely will help in the case of uh, when the vehicle's running, filtering the air and and so forth to make it a little safer for people. So just one of the what is happening and some of the technology coming out of COVID uh, since uh, the last year. In occur? a real
1: in a real sense. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Look at that. I mean, if I'm buying a new car, I am listening to this. I mean, that is a selling item. So I can imagine those kind of filters are going to start popping up. But it's not the only way, you know, when you think about it, that technology is really ripe for this moment. We also have... Um, Heard reporting that artificial intelligence is also finding ways to work its way into the vaccine and therapies on how it's applied. I, you know, this could be a moment for technology and healthcare.
2: Absolutely. And I think to add to this, just before COVID was kind of ramping up or or coming together, or I guess being released, um, there was a big announcement with the fact that quantum computing was achieved. And that was done through IBM, it was done through Google. What's that got to do with artificial intelligence? What it's done is it's taken a situation like COVID and it's applied how quantum computing can take billions and and millions of trillions of scenarios. To be able to determine how a vaccine would be able to react and honestly i'm not in the uh pfizer medical labs with all of the technicians but i do know for a fact that artificial intelligence with this quantum computing system is capable of looking at scenarios and has taken 10 years of research and squished it in a matter of 18 months to put scenarios together that have been helping develop these vaccines this is All happening within the last couple years uh, from the uh, ability of the software to do it, the hardware to be able to uh, implement it. And I think if we take a look at the element of where we're moving in the future, this is is the ability of where COVID has forced this system to create solutions for us.
1: Yeah. Do you think the public's mind is ready for this? You know, there's always a little pushback against technology and people are skeptical, but people are kind of desperate to be honest Adam.
2: Well, it's going to really take this one scenario. And I keep hearing about, you know, COVID's getting all the attention, COVID's getting a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the news. And, and, but I look at it in my side and going, this is really, I hate to say it, uh, to look at the cups half full, uh, a positive um, using this kind of technology and an algorithm in a positive way to find a solution, I mean I hate to say the next uh, coronavirus mm-hmm. or the n1 n2 or mm-hmm. n three whatever it may come come to be um, this is letting us build a foundation to be able to find that solution quicker, faster uh, and easier for us to, uh, and possibly even other uh, ailments that might exist, this has put it to the test. So we can honestly say that because of COVID, science has advanced by more than eight years of what it would take to put research in place. This has been a positive out of this outcome.
1: All right. I'm also reading, you know, we were kind of uh, aggregating all these tech stories for you as as you're going to join us. And robots, there's been a lot of worry, and this is an example of what you just said. I mean, there's been concern about algorithms and then, you know, the how it's working in social media. Well, there's concerns about robots taking jobs, but hey, I mean, if robots can move into rooms and work in the healthcare world without without the threat and, and being so vulnerable to this disease, I think people are opening their minds to that. How close are we?
2: I think we were there before, but nobody wanted to implement yeah. a robotic yeah. into our environment because of that exact scenario you described. Um, and honestly, looking at it, there's uh, so many new trends with robots. That have now uh, elevated where the acceptance is there, as you just indicated. Whether it's uh, a frontline worker has a robot go in with, uh, I think in South Korea it's called the the Corona bot, mm-hmm. and what it does is it literally re- rolls into a uh, into a, 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 a an hospital room or uh, whether it's a, maybe a possible past infected environment, and it shoots. Ultraviolet rays around the, around the room, then it does an analysis with a heat analysis uh, deten- determines how and where and what areas of the room were not uh, uh, scanned, adjusts it, uh, makes sure it scans it again uh, or sprays it or, or passes the ultraviolet rays across it. and then what it does is it gives a clearance to say that this room has now been cleaned with a ninety nine point nine eight percent accuracy um, and then it allows. Uh, the doctors, nurses, or uh, frontline workers to be able to come in. I mean, this is something that, again, where if you and I were having this conversation without COVID and and we said, well, there's Mm going to be robots going in to clean and sanitize a medical room, there would be an outcry of, this is unacceptable. How can these robots come in and and take, these are jobs that were, this is actually putting a lot of safety measures in place that normally would have been shunned about a year and a half ago.
1: You got it. I can, you know, my whole, my imagination is going, what about, you know, robots? You could say, go and get me my groceries and I'm waiting over here. And I, I think there could be a kinder reception to robots. And there's a few movies in there. I think, too, Adam, that we talked about. <laughs> I think there's a, a place where, what about the robots go rogue, all those things. However, uh, we're listening to technology, and it is certainly a moment. Adam feel thank you for joining us. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: That's the podcast for today. You can hear On Point live on the radio Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10 p.m. I'm Arlene Bynum for Alex Pearson.